0: Hi, I'm Shireen Patek and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. In a category filled with what seemed to be a new swimmer or lingerie brand every week, telehealth and pharmaceutical products have been making a mark in the DTC space. One of the frontrunners is Rowe, best known perhaps for its brand Roman, which is a pharmacy provider of erectile dysfunction products. Joining me today will be Will Flaherty, VP of Growth at Rowe, But first, our very own Anna Hensel joins us to tell me all about what she did this week, which was spend a lot of time at New York's Javits Center. Hi, Anna. Hi, Shereen. You were at the NRF annual conference this week, which is at Javits Center. And I'm curious to hear before we get on to our interview for the podcast about what exactly you felt was the most interesting thing you saw at the NRF Big Show this year.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple things there. First of all, uh, for those who haven't been to NRF, it's very tech-focused. So you have a lot of vendors uh, displaying their various uh, robotics they've developed to help smooth out the fulfillment process, improve the like shelving process in store. Uh, so it's very tech-focused. And one of the things that stood out to me this year is just when I took a brief um, walk through the exhibition hall is just that a lot of the solutions that were on display this year were kind of ones that... I don't want to say weren't as exciting, but they seem to be very toned down and really to help retailers solve kind of the more granular, less sexy problems of, okay, how do we stock shelves more quickly? How do we improve the backroom fulfillment process? How can we improve returns? Which I thought was very interesting and just speaks to a lot of the challenges that physical retailers face right now as, you know, fewer people visit stores. Not only do they have to figure out how to get people to their stores, keep them excited, but they just also have to figure out a lot of ways to cut down on costs in store. So
0: real problems that feel a little bit more realistic and directly connected to the business versus something that's a little bit flashier, a little sexier. You felt like the the technology showcase was just... Felt like it was solving real problems for retailers this year.
1: Yeah, you'll always still have a few. uh, It seems like every year there's always people pitching smart mirrors, which maybe they'll catch on one day. Um, But yeah, I do think it was a lot more focused on real problems retailers have.
0: That's really interesting. It feels it feels almost sort of the polar opposite from CES, which also just concluded, which at least, you know, I thankfully was not in Vegas this year, but at least on Twitter felt like it was, you know, robots delivering toilet paper, at least three types of robots delivering three types of toilet paper versus a little bit different at NRF sounds like you know a little bit more realistic. That's yeah, good news, I, did, I think, for the industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did not see any robots promising to deliver you a coffee while you're shopping, for Excellent. example. That makes a lot of sense. Um,
0: one thing that I did want to talk about was you actually wrote a great story um, this week, and that sort of delved into this theme a little bit. And we've been—it's part of a series we're doing on modern retail, kind of looking at technologies and sort of the real use cases of those technologies beyond what the first use case or even the most hyped use case was. And you wrote, speaking of smart mirrors, a great piece about kind of what's really going on with RFID. And, you know, we we talk in the piece a little bit about sort of six, five to six years ago when RFID was going to be used mostly in the shopping experience to really change the way you use dressing rooms, change the way you try on apparel. There were quite a few companies that tried this. Rebecca Minkoff was among them. I believe Ralph Lauren was among them. And you wrote a great piece kind of saying, you know what, this Is this the year that sort of or is this the time at which RFID really catches on and what the real use case would be? Where do you think we are going to end up with this sort of RFID, beacons, location tech? Where is that going to end up in retail and what the real use of that is?
1: Right. So it's interesting. Anytime there is new technology in retail, I think this is applicable to a lot of other industries, too. But you always have vendors who will pitch it as a solution for all sorts of different types of problems. So there was talk about 10 years ago that RFID would catch on and it kind of ramped up five about five years after that, where I saw articles that RFID would basically deter uh, shoplifting, that it would create this super magic in-store experience where when you went to a dressing room, the mirror would display with all this information about the product that you brought in. And kind of what panned out is just that it's uh, with a lot of this technology, the most relevant use case is often the one that is kind of more applicable to the backroom process so you still are seeing more retailers basically use RFID for inventory management so just kind of a quick explainer on RFID uh, basically it's people are reusing using it to replace barcodes so it allows you to uh, read kind of a product tag more quickly than a barcode you don't have to point a scanner right at a barcode and one. One of the brands I talked to, Outdoor Voices, basically said that RFID allowed them to cut down the amount of time it took someone to count all the inventory in store from several hours, multiple people doing it to one person who could do it in under under an hour. So it definitely... It does have its value. Uh, the problem is, is that it's still uh, expensive. So RFID tags cost uh, probably about under ten cents now, whereas a barcode costs under half a cent. So you know, if you're selling a tube of toothpaste, RFID tagging doesn't really make sense. It starts um, adding up. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we'll see uh, more retailers use it for inventory management who are selling more expensive products. Um, another brand, uh, Nike, this year recently started uh, using. RFID tags for all its inventory. So again, as with a lot of other things in retail, sometimes people have talked about RFID as it as though it'll be a given that every retailer will be using it. And it makes sense for some retailers, but not everyone.
0: Sounds great. I think theme of the week is real technology solving real business problems. Yeah. Sounds great. Anna. thank you so much. And now for our interview with Will Flaherty, Rose VP of Growth. Hi, Will. Hi,
2: how's it going? Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to have you. Okay, I think for a lot of people, sort of, Rose is Roman, Roman is Ro, but there's a lot more to Row And you've created what I think is sort of a really interesting house of brands that works really well together yet are very distinct in their own right. Walk us through what Roe is.
2: At the end of the day, Roe is a platform that connects people uh, Uh, patients, Americans, anyone who's seeking healthcare to a physician who's licensed in their state, that physician can uh, work with them uh, to uh, go through their symptoms. And then if if medication is right for them, can prescribe medication. Uh, And then secondly, we operate a uh, network of pharmacies that can deliver uh, that medication that uh, our network of physicians may prescribe right to your door.
0: So you've got three different brands. How are they different from each other? You've got Roe, you've got Rory. Let's talk through sort of what they all do and how they all work.
2: Well, really, the, the thinking about the, the transition of uh, and growth of our business from uh, Roman uh, when we launched was really just a service focused on the treatment of erectile dysfunction through telemedicine. And in the process of building all the infrastructure needed to um, support that 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 business and that mission, we we really realized that we had built a platform that could treat and and serve far greater needs than just um, that one condition area. So, um, we started to really expand what we offered first under the Roman brand. Um, so we launched treatments for hair loss, uh, cold sores, genital herpes, premature ejaculation, other conditions. Uh, and then as that expanded, we realized we had this incredible platform. We had a network of physicians. We had a pharmacy network. It really allowed us to to you know think more broadly around how we served. Um, more health needs and more populations. And so that led us to really, uh, I think, transform Roman as a company to Ro, um, really to speak to a broader breadth and broader range of all the different things we could do. Roman uh, now is a brand underneath Roe. And then we launched uh, Zero, uh, which was focused on addiction and um, smoking cessation specifically. So it's a combination therapy of prescription, over-the-counter and behavioral uh, modification therapy to help someone improve their odds of quitting smoking. Um, Then we launched Rory, which is focused on women's health, um, particularly uh, uh, perimenopausal conditions, as well as some kind of cosmetic uh, offerings as well. So um, that's kind of the basis now. And and we have these brands that I think speak to really, really most all populations. We have Roman and Rory, and we're building on that and thinking now about how we can continue to expand the breadth of, of what we treat and how we can help more people um, that with a broader range of health needs.
0: I, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of, you know, this idea of a hero product. And I think that for a lot of companies in this so-called direct-to-consumer e-commerce space, essentially companies that started in the last three to five years or even, or even actually more recently than that, um, started online mostly and are taking advantage of essentially a broken system in whatever industry they happen to be with, which is exactly what you guys are doing and trying to make it better. For companies like yours, I think there's been this, this idea that you start with this hero product and then you build things along it. And a lot's been written and we've written a lot about sort of the stretchability of a brand and the stronger a brand is, how you can have adjacent products and they can be just as strong. But there is a playbook to this. There's sort of like step one, hero products. Step two, Instagram advertising. Step three, profit. Step four, product number two. What was kind of the trajectory like at Row? Was the idea always to do Roman and then see what happens? Was the idea, or did we have no idea what was going on? And how did you think of it in your role running growth when you're thinking of brands that you didn't even know what was going to happen with them? Right. I mean,
2: I think that what, again, the thing that opened our eyes was the power of the platform and the service. And I think when we've thought about marketing, Um, And really, I'd say this started even before I joined. I joined about a year and a half ago, and the company's a little more than two years old. And um, I think we started to transition away from talking just about treatment of one thing. Um, You know, our marketing's not focused on, you know, drugs. We're not, you know, we're, we're really talking about a service. And when we kind of zoom out and say we're talking about a healthcare service that can comprehensively treat... Um, a condition and give someone constant ongoing care, um, access to a physician whenever they need, um, that that actually has far greater, wider bounds of what we can address. And so I think that the real, the the transition, it wasn't to say, you know, we're going to have our, our first stake in the ground here and kind of expand out. I think it, that um, r- really some of the early decisions that we made around building a, a platform that could support all these things and support us, treating people uh, with incredible high degree of care, um, rapid delivery, all these things um, really just afforded us the opportunity to very quickly think about how we can um, really reach reach more people, right? And if you think about, okay. um, you know, every condition has a subset of the population that is affected by it, right? And so, you know, for us to be able to treat, you know, other uh, you know, populations, other groups, we have to think about other conditions that might affect each of these kind of small pockets. And so I think that's really what, what we saw is we saw the potential to to do more with what we had um, yeah. and kind of moved, moved ahead from there rather than, um, you know, really mapping it out. It's not, I wouldn't say it's been a, a master plan from the day one <laughs> to where we are today. We've certainly learned as as we've gone you know, on. A
0: blueprint two years ago. <laughs> no, not, 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 not that I'm aware of, at least. Um, <laughs> it's hidden in a vault. Um, I think something you said in there was really interesting. And I think to me, when sort of observing kind of Roe from the outside, Roman at first, and then Roe from the outside, has been that I think you're whether, and I don't know, and I'd like to ask if it was intentional or not, you've always sort of focused kind of everything about the company as a platform or a service versus, again, to your point, the product. It's not here's the thing, because there's many things that'll help you, I don't know, quit smoking. It's more here's a holistic approach or service that you should be part of and then we'll help you get there. And then then comes in sort of the pharmacy network, then comes in the physician physician network, then also obviously the products themselves. But was that how has that kind of been different? Because I do think it's quite different from a lot of companies in sort of e-commerce or just any kind of online space, which have generally been product oriented versus service oriented.
2: I would say for us, you know, and this isn't universal across the board. We do have you know proprietary products and things that we've developed, but but by and large, um, you know, certainly as we started, um, you're offering generic medication. There are other places one can go online uh, to to acquire that. One can acquire including
0: that, including Amazon.com. Apparently, there, <laughs> you exactly. get some weird stuff if you type that in there.
2: There are places you can go, right? And so I think for us, you know, the, the actual difference is because the product is. Um, you know, per, certainly for many prescriptions, a, a commodity in many respects, um, service is our our one area where we can meaningfully differentiate, right? So when we think about, you know, the, the quality and responsiveness of um, our physicians, our customer care team, um, you know, speed and and discretion of shipping and packaging, those are things that I think we, we've really um, – Lean more heavily into as we've we've gotten off the ground and have continued to really value and put a lot of time and effort behind, um, because again, th- that that's where we can put some some competitive space between us and and the rest of the pack.
0: Going back to sort of the idea that okay, you start you know again start with different brands under under the row brand. I think that a big part of that is the strength of the brand to begin with. Um. Do you lean on each other when it comes to thinking of sort of either marketing capabilities, you know, growth strategies? Are you are you leaning on each other as brands, or are you really treating these as you know three brands that just happen to be owned by the same company?
2: I would say in terms of how we're we're running them, they're not. We have a just organizationally same team is working on a lot of this stuff. So it's um, at least in terms of a lot of the marketing and acquisition. Um, I think we're. Um, you know, we're not bifurcating it so much that people can't uh, borrow from, from what um, they've learned on the other brand. So I think by, because we've set it up that way, I think we've been well-positioned to, to take those learnings and apply them you know, pretty easily. Um, but, but, but in general, yeah, we, we, we see some things that we can borrow and things that we uh, will have to change that will be unique and different. And, and um, you know, again, all these populations are – I'd say the populations that we treat are, are different in our audience for each of these brands – is not just divided by the brand, but also the, the condition, right? So the uh, target consumer for hair loss treatment is very different in age, um, psychographic, demographic than that of someone who's seeking treatment for erectile dysfunction. right? And so, um, which presents some opportunities, but also challenges, right? We have one brand that's speaking, that needs to speak to a lot of different people with a lot of different needs. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of how we try to balance that out is, is how we think about our messaging, our marketing, and how that manifests in terms of the way we present the service. But one universal truth across all these populations, um, whether young or old, is at the end of the day, you need to be able to trust this service. Uh, you need to be able to feel confidence that you're going to get safe, uh, reliable, um, you know, excellent care. And because that's a truism, that is a thread that still is consistent across all of our, our marketing.
0: How is... How has kind of that trust actually been communicated through sort of everything you're doing? I'd love some examples.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, th- we think of it in a couple ways. One is, can we, we build trust by really aligning ourselves with um, institutions or um, entities that can help us um, build that trust? So we've done partnerships with diabetes groups and prostate cancer awareness groups and other entities to help um, really burnish, uh, you know, I think burnish our... Position as, as an entity that's really thinking deeply about the healthcare system and overall health. When we think about a lot of our um, broader marketing, we're also trying to work with um, institutions that people really trust. And so one big point of that is we've done a major partnership with Major League Baseball. So um, we've become an official league partner. And so when we're advertising, we, we have their marks and their logos in our, in our um, commercials and on our site. Um, we're advertising extensively during their marquee programming. Um, I think that the, our presence in those events and our affiliation with the league helps someone feel a lot more comfortable around mm. us and and who we are and what we're, we're doing. We're like, not fly by night.
0: Is it almost like legitimacy? I guess that's the word I'm, I'm looking – you know, a lot of people haven't heard of you. The majority of people probably haven't heard of you.
2: Certainly a majority right. haven't, right? <laughs> so at, at a base level, um, that's still important. Um, we're we're young, right? We're only two years old. We have not been around forever. So there's still a, a need and degree to do it. So some of that can just be by affiliation and association. The other way that we really build trust is we want to pull out, you know, I think real human stories of people that have um, interacted with our platform, whether those are our physicians or advisors. So we had a series of TV spots that we ran and that featured um, some of our physicians um, reading testimonials from customers, right? And so really talking about how, and, and really, even for the first time, seeing the impact of their work on the real lives of, of the people that they're treating. Um, we've recently launched another set of TV commercials um, that are testimonials from some of our customers, some of our members talking about um, what what they love about Roman, and how they've um, – how Romans helped them overcome uh, certain health hurdles and obstacles. And so I think those are things where um, – those words can speak way more powerfully than anything that, that we can say, right? We can, you know, shout from the rooftops that, hey, our service is great. It's awesome. Give it a try. Um, there's so much more power and gravitas that comes from someone who's actually experienced it, um, you know, putting it into their words. And so i um, really excited about, uh, again, continuing to tell these human stories kind of on both, on all sides of the platform.
0: It's a hard one to measure, right? Like, does someone trust you? It's a hard one to sort of say. Okay, you can measure awareness. You could say where people are. Are You thinking of ways to, especially in your role, to sort of say, okay, this is working, or people are trust, or more people are trusting us, or the people that knew us are now trusting us. How do you, how do you quantify something like that?
2: You know, you, you kind of have to go to the the classic, like old school marketer playbook of doing a lot of of kind of battery benchmark research, um, asking prospects. Um, running them through, you know, awareness questions and, um, you know, trust sentiment batteries. And so we're starting to do some of that. Uh, but I think in general, a lot of it is, is it's meted out in performance. We can tell from the ways that we're, you know, measuring, you know, a lot of the top of funnel creative that, that, that features, you know, some of these, these real human stories. We can see the impact in the business. It it really is 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 meaningful. So, and I think for us, it's it's a little different than Mm -hmm. other brands, right? So, if if someone has a testimonial ad to talk about their let's talk about swimwear, just because there's so many swimwear t shirt, whatever, (laughs) fine fine and well. Um, I I think that given given our category and our space, um, it's all the more important for us to to really. elevate the stories
0: is that why you went into tv like so early i I, I did think it was pretty early like i thought it was early considering how old you were and i'm not i was just curious because there was there were a few others or a few other brands around you know last year where i was just looking at a bunch of data and i was like oh look at here are sort of the brands that only started very recently that are going to tv pretty early considering that they haven't been around that long because again going back to the playbook it did feel like oh People waited for like, I don't know, I don't know whether it was they got more funding or whether it was that Facebook finally sort of was not working for them or whatever it was. But was TV sort of a conscious decision to say, let's because we're in this category that's so personal, it's about health. Like what is more personal than that? We should go into this sort of more serious medium earlier and do it before we think we actually need to or something like that.
2: I would say, on one hand, I think when we really started advertising on TV in earnest, um, there's some initial degree of legitimizing factor of just being present, <laughs> yeah. just being present on national TV. It's So
0: funny to think it, about. It's, it's crazy to think <laughs>
2: about, but like you know, con- I, you know, I think from what we've kind of gleaned, I mean, consumers, you know, con- consumers think that you're a more legitimate brand because you're on TV amidst all the other big brands and. Um, I think whenever we did that, and particularly as we did more high-profile things, right? So when we're um, advertising the World Series, right? It's you know it's an ad of us and Geico and you know um, Bud Light, and it's what all these these national brands that everyone knows, and and so just the the you know the adjacency to that it, it seems kind of crazy, but but it, it it has, and it's it's not very quantifiable, right? It's hard to gauge, it's hard to um, it's hard to dip your toes into, but. Um, I think we've gotten a lot of value out of it. And a lot of the the, the traditional logic would say, you know, don't do this. And when you look at the um, the performance metrics, right, of doing um, maybe, maybe more high-profile um, TV advertising, you know, the, the initial metrics of, well, how many visitors did it come to site and what was the cost? And it's not going to look as strong. And so you have to almost kind of Embrace this this more difficult, uh, murky environment, and um, hope for the best. And we we certainly saw saw good results from it. But um, I, I think that's that's really that was part of the decision. Part of the other decision is that um, you know a lot of our our core demographic is there. Our core demographic certainly when we launched on TV um, at the time we only offered ED as a as a treatment option. Um, you know the average. Um, age of someone who's suffering from media is it's on the older end and that's where the media consumption is so i think the other thing to keep in mind is you kind of have to go where your customer is and our customer um is is certainly spends time on digital channels but is also watching a lot
0: of tv absolutely we're gonna talk a little bit more about tv a lot more about a bunch of other things right after this ad break okay so tv went on tv thought it was early and it makes sense again different category your consumer is very different from again that sort of maybe it's a 19-year-old buying a lip gloss in New York very different um different idea there but you were also equally sort of interested or advertising on digital channels i mean you were on Facebook were on Instagram was there sort of was there a sense of a shift that okay let's move towards a medium that again might be a little murkier maybe us as digitally native people might feel a little uncomfortable with at the beginning. Um, how do you sort of balance at this point kind of your marketing mix, especially when you're thinking about what's working, performance orientation, and then growth and retention?
2: You know, I think for us, we didn't, um, w- when we launched on TV, we didn't think of it as a, as a shift away from Digital or something at the expense of digital, more so something that was complementary, right? And that um, all these mediums play a different role. And I think what we've seen is as we've broadened the scale of where we advertise and the, the channel executions that we um, that, that we run, people are interacting with multiple touch points, right? So they're not just seeing a Facebook ad and clicking and going to the site and converting. Uh, particularly with a product or service like ours, that is much greater consideration. Um, there's more time and effort that goes involved, goes into the purchase process. Um, and so for us, you know, I think we saw it as something that can complement and actually play a role and move certain measures up in ways that maybe a digital ad couldn't, right? So again, going back to the trust theme, you know, the 30-second ad format on TV gives you a lot more room to, to get into value props and talk about uh, your service in a, in a depth uh, that you can't possibly reach in a in a text ad on Google or even in, in you know, most uh, Facebook or Instagram formats. So I think a lot of it is um, as we've grown and expanded and, and you know, we're fortunate that, um, you know, our service has broad applicability and it's the type of thing that, um, you know, tens of millions of Americans could use. Um, it, it affords us the chance to kind of expand the scope of what we do and then have each of these channels
0: complement one another. Um, a lot of talk has been around sort of CAC, sort of customer acquisition costs. Um, I do think I'm hearing more about sort of it's actually retention that we should be focusing on more than acquisition. What is I'd love to maybe even take off your row hat for a minute, um, your metaphorical row hat. What is sort of the reality right now of kind of this this what seems to me almost a little bit of like a panicked idea, especially among this like kind of small, uh, somewhat uh, very close knit community of direct to consumer again, e-commerce startup founders, executives that, oh my God, we've got to worry about we have to keep an eye on our customer acquisition costs are ballooning beyond control. A lot of it's being, you know, driven by, you know, we all have a lot of funding. Our VCs are asking for growth, 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 growth. That leads to, we're just going to spend a ton on advertising, but our costs are going up because Facebook has seen this. What's actually going on? Cause I think you actually wrote a great, um, wrote something on this a little while ago that I was interested in. So I'm curious on, to get sort of the unvarnished point of view of sort of CAC retention and all of these issues with platforms in the industry and what is really going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I think we, we're we in a bit of a different situation than maybe others, largely because of the breadth of our audience, right? So um, I, I think that we are, we're fortunate that we are not going after just a 20 to 30-year-old mm. um, customer. So um, I think that that now we still reach plenty of those folks through these major platforms i wouldn't say that we've experienced the same cataclysmically you know challenging environment on on facebook that maybe others have, have but there reported. is a
0: cataclysmically challenging environment for somebody on facebook
2: certainly people are people are reporting that and i would say if you're a business that is dependent on say a holiday sales period right so i'd say at least with have been through two holiday cycles now at, at um, row and have been at other brands previously that, that did a lot around the holidays. And um, I would say it did seem like there was much more much more of a frenzy this particular kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday period in terms of um, ad rates and the way that mm-hmm. um, th- that um, I think kind of prices and CPMs were kind of bid up in that time period. Sure. So i say there's something there. So if you're dependent on that, that's tight window to capture – 20 25 percent of your sales it's in it's certainly going to be more and more challenging and but but in general I think we are we're fortunate that we can we can kind of take advantage of times when when other brands are not as active right so considering um, that you know the, the November and December periods are generally you know from a behavioral standpoint times when people don't uh, do as much in the healthcare space <laughs> in terms of taking care of themselves they're thinking all about Others and um, the gifts cookies. they want to buy for cookies. <laughs> um, you know, people generally, um, you know, uh, are concerned about how unhealthy they are around the holidays. And then as uh, January rolls around, of course, they start really um, thinking a lot more about going to the gym and, and taking care of their health. And so, uh, you were somewhat fortunate that um, we can, um, you know, be active maybe when others are, are a little more passive on these platforms. Um, so I think we we go with the flow. We don't uh, we don't try to. To to push up um, in in times when it's really competitive, um, sure. but but I think you know we're we're fortunate that we have I think a broader demographic to not be um, as. Um um, as susceptible to some of these these pressures that maybe other other uh, DTC brands face.
0: Broadly speaking, though, again, you know there has been so much activity in every category across this. Whether we're talking consumer consumer goods or health, and, and even in health, it's you know there are a lot of people sort of doing health and wellness and categories like that. I mean. A lot of talk of Bubble, a lot of talk of, is there so much funding? Can these companies be worth this much? And then I think adding on to the pressures of this are sort of an idea that a lot of these brands were built on Instagram. A lot of them just did really well because they started up at a time that it was easier to start a company than ever before. Shopify was making things really easy, for example. And it was also easy because you could market a company better than ever before. So where do we sort of... End up? Where are we at the point now? Just based on sort of your observations of what's going on in overall across kind of online retail, where do we end up here? Are we at a point of reckoning, or is something else going ha- going on?
2: I, I think that the, the, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with building a successful brand that's doing. You know, if you if you think about you know what's kind of reported of these TTC brands that hit a wall at. Mm you know, $50 million or $100 million of revenue if they're a single product or a, you know, clothing retailer or, or whatever. There's nothing wrong with building that type of business. It's
0: quite a good business. It's a
2: great business, 50 right? $50 sounds like
0: a good the, business. The, the,
2: you know, the, the, the challenge, what makes it so rec- so um, ominous is that, um, you know, in many cases, these companies have, have sold investors on the the prospect of it being a much much larger enterprise right and so I think that that's really the challenge and, and, and the rub and so um, when we think about the funding environment I think there have, are plenty of companies that have raised a ton of money and um, you know as you think about it it's it's all about calibrating real opportunity to um, to what what you do and I think in in likely the the companies that are fa- feeling the most pressure in that environment or um, are realizing possibly their their overall market is just not as large as they thought it might be.
0: It's sort been. of expectations, right? I mean, and I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, growth numbers that just maybe don't make sense for their category. You just can't post X percent growth in this particular category at this particular time, but they've made promises, they have expectations. You run growth. Um, do you think about sort of growth in a less kind of accelerationist way? are you thinking about growth in a way that's, you know, let's be more considered. It's okay if we don't grow X percent every single quarter. And was that a shift that you had to make just even for yourself? Because I think there is this idea, oh, it's a new company. You want to grow really quickly, all these new brands. Was there a pressure? And are you seeking to kind of be more thoughtful about it?
2: Yeah, I think from from the outset, we've been more thoughtful. And I think, you know, we, um, you know, we, we know that, as we continue to grow and scale, we also have to make investments in um, not just, you know, marketing and acquisition, but in technology and in things that might take some time, but will then unlock greater potential mm. down the road. I think we're, we're so fortunate and lucky in that, you know, our bounds in terms of what we can eventually do and eventually treat um, are, are, you know, th- there are limits, but we can overcome some of those limits by building technology and building experiences to help um help us address a broader range of, of conditions and, and healthcare issues. So, you know, by making some of those investments, um, you know, we can we can find growth through that. We can find growth through being able to address a broader range of conditions, mm-hmm. which is a different story than I think a lot of brands that are just like, how much more can we squeeze <laughs> out of the Facebook black box? How much more can we squeeze out of, of these digital channels? Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that there's so much more room for us to grow, um, you know, horizontally and vertically, right? And so um, we want to do both of those things and, and do them simultaneously and do them responsibly, but um, think about about growth in all aspects.
0: Yeah. It's like almost a new definition for growth. It's like vice president of considered growth, we'll call it. Will, thank you so much for being on the show. You bet. Thank you. And that's all for today's episode of Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer, of course, is Pierre BNMA who also made our amazing theme music. If you like the show, here's what you need to do head to your iTunes store, search for our show, and leave us a review and a rating. It helps new listeners find us. We'll be back next week with another episode mm mm-hmm.